Hey, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I am here with Elsa Chang. Elsa, introduce yourself. I'm Elsa Chang, <laughs> congressional <laughs> correspondent at NPR. And this is your first time on the podcast? It sure is. Woohoo! Woo. Uh, we have a gift for you. Of, no, we don't, actually. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, okay. My gift is being here with there you, There you Sam. go. Your presence is a present. Mm. Speaking of presents, we had a Supreme Court justice up in here the other day, correct? Yes, we did. It was so cool. It was Justice Stephen Breyer. Uh, He's known as one of the court's more liberal justices, and he's got a new book out now. But really, we thought it was a great excuse to get him on the podcast and talk about the court. And Justice Breyer is one of nine people who make huge decisions, like gay marriage or just this past week, the court heard some oral arguments challenging affirmative action in colleges. They'll decide that later this year. That's right. And, And, you know, the court gets talked about way less than either Congress or the executive branch. And it's treated with a certain kind of respect or or deference that, frankly, the other two branches don't get to enjoy as much of. Certainly not the branch I cover, Congress. Still, there's a lot about the court the public doesn't get to see. And you'll hear Justice Breyer talk about the magnitude of his job, what it's like to be trusted with the power these nine justices have, what it's like to do the job on a day-to-day basis, to prepare for the big cases, to sit on the bench and hear those cases. And what it's like after all of that, the part that no one sees when the nine justices sit around that one table, talk to each other, and make up their minds about really serious issues like gay marriage or the president's health care law. Oh, oh, oh. And we also talk about Hamilton. Wait, what? Hamilton. Oh, my God. Yeah, like not, the, yeah well, Alexander, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander, but the, but but the, the, the musical. musical. Yeah. I love Hamilton the musical. I haven't seen it, but I really, oh, the really the soundtrack it. is fire. It's so good. He loved it. You'll hear about that. Really? Loved what did he like Total about it? Well, you're going to get to it, I yeah. guess. That's so cool. Okay, so here is your conversation with Justice Stephen Breyer. This is you, uh, Ron Elving, our editor who's been on the podcast before. And making her podcast debut, Nina Totenberg. Oh, snap. Yeah, who's nice. kind of a big deal herself. Kind of. She just is a big deal. Oh, Real absolutely. Big deal. Real I mean, big deal. She has been covering the Supreme Court at NPR for a long time. She pretty much knows everything there is to know about the court. And so we thought it would be kind of cool to start with a round of questions that not even Nina knew all the answers to. That's probably impossible. There were I a few. I just feel like, okay. There were definitely a few. I'll trust you on that. And except for Nina, we are all Stanford nerds in this group. So that's what we're blabbing about right here at the top. That's not a bad nerd to be. Um, (laughs) Thank you. All right, here's the conversation. Enjoy. All right. This is a big Stanford group. It is a big Stanford group. It is. Nina's an honorary. Uh. (laughs) Honorary alumna. That's it. I'm honorary. I'm honorary. So let's get started. Uh, we thought we should start the podcast in a totally unsupreme way with a lightning round of, frankly, not so serious questions. I'm now going to turn this one over to Nina. So are you ready to play, Justice Breyer? Yes. Okay. Tell us one or two jokes that are your favorites that you really think are funny that you tell to your grandchildren. They don't think they're funny. <laughs> they don't think they're funny. Or they don't think no, your jokes are funny. No, they don't think my jokes are funny. Well, let me oh. hear one of them. Uh, a, a, a man, some late one, five o'clock uh, on a winter's evening on the Boston Common, goes into a dentist's office and says, uh, <clears throat> "I've got to see the doctor. It's an emergency." You don't think it's funny yet? I can tell. <laughs> he goes, "It's an emergency." He says, "Well, it's five o'clock. It's late, but if it's an emergency, so the dentist comes out and says, "What can I do for you? What's the problem?" He says, "Doctor, I think I'm a moth." He said, "Do you think you're a moth?" He said, "But I'm a dentist. You need a psychiatrist. Why did you come in here?" 
He says, well, the light was on. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> that is pretty good. Oh, there we are. Okay. What is, in your view, the best Supreme Court perk? I've been looking for perks for 21 years. <laughs> and I have found very, very few. In fact, I, I suppose that there is, because of the security situation, it's not really a perk, but there are security people who take us to the airport and help us at the airport. That's probably, it's so far, the only thing I'd found that I can't quite call a perk because I think the times require it. I understand that. Um, but what is there? Are there other perks? You've been around there longer than I have, maybe. Well, maybe you get to go. Longer. You get to go to a lot of sort of fancy dues. I, I learned about that, you know, years ago when they have things at the court, and um, <laughs> this is just typical. And they have things reception or something right. at the court, and there was a, a lot of young lawyers who came. And one of the lo- young lawyers came up to me, and he said, "Oh, Justice Breyer." I really like your opinion so much. Would you please sign my program as an autograph? So I was flattered, and I said, of course. So I signed his thing. Then I noticed as he walked off, he turned to his friend, and he held up four fingers and said, that makes four. That's that's basically, you see, you were in the top half. (laughs) So if you could make up a dinner party of six guests, living or dead, who would you choose? I think You're I've been to guests. I've been to that dinner party. No, no, I want that wouldn't that. be a very good dinner party. I mean, would you want to have dinner with John Marshall or Thomas Jefferson or, or not? Of or, the founders, you know. Yeah, I, any I, of the founders. Of course, the most. In, I just went to see. We got to see the 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 play Hamilton, and it was terrific. I mean, and I'm not someone who would naturally, I guess, uh, say, "Oh, I want to see two hours of rap music," but I came away thinking, "Well, it was an opera." It was a ballet. It was a story. It communicated the, the, the values that I believe, from all I've read, the framers really did have, and in did so in a way that the next generation and the generation after that will understand and absorb and like it. And I thought that's such a good thing. And I learned a lot about Hamilton. So I'd love to have Hamilton at that dinner. I think he would be very interesting to talk to. Very interesting indeed. And your first question would be? My first question would be, why did you get involved with duels? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is it true that your mother made you get a job as a ditch digger because she thought you were too bookish? That could be true, but also they paid me. But it, did she really think that you were too bookish? Well, she had two brothers, my uncles, who who made careers in academic life. And I, I think that uh, my father was more, I'd say, on the practical side. Uh, uh, his talents were more practical. But I think she wanted me to uh, not necessarily uh, become just become a professor. And, of course, I did become a professor. <laughs> but a ditch-digging professor. Well, it didn't. How much did they pay you? I can't remember, but it was enough money then for the summer that it was just fine. <laughs> we, uh, we did some work, and it was just for the summer. So my last question in this lightning round is, yeah. how fast do you read? I read slower than I used to. It depends on what I'm reading. I probably read briefs faster because the idea with a brief is to, is to absorb what's there. And it is interesting. I think uh, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a journalist, uh, whatever profession you're in, when you're dealing with your professional work, you can focus on it and you can absorb things pretty quickly. So, if I'm reading a novel, 
I read more slowly. Given how much you read for your work, how much do you seek out reading as your recreation? Quite a lot. I probably read half an hour to 45 minutes a day. So you're, you're not an Evelyn Wood speed reader, though. Oh, I took a course on that at Stanford. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. They used to have those courses in Evelyn and Wood speed did, reading. Did you do okay? I did all right, but I, I began to, they began to, I thought were telling us things like, you know, hold the page up to the light so you can read both sides at the same time. Oh, <laughs> I don't think they really did. <laughs> well, the reason Nina asked you that last question, how fast you read, is, you know, and you talked a little bit about it. There's so much material that you have to wade through to prepare for these cases that come before you. Not only the briefs that we talked about, hundreds of briefs, right? Yeah, now, how much material? Well, if you stack it up in a big case, in an important case, it often would come as high as my mid-thigh. You're talking thousands of pages. You want to know how, how is this actually done? Yeah. Well, in a typical case, I mean, we couldn't handle it. If, in fact, uh, the number of briefs in more than one or possibly two cases a year was like affirmative action cases. I mean, when we had the affirmative action cases, there were about 100 briefs. In a typical case, there aren't knee-high stacks. In a typical case, there might be 10, 12 briefs. That's what I face to read myself. You see, I, I don't want to go onto the bench without having read the briefs. Now... I'll give the 12 briefs to my law clerks. I'll say, each of you take three, and each of you write a memorandum, giving your analysis of it. I discuss it with my clerks. We may have two or three discussions, and then we have the oral argument. At the oral argument, as you see, it's horrible for the poor lawyers, because we <laughs> do not think that that half hour each side is for them to make their argument. We think we know the argument, yeah. and we think that half hour is for us to pose questions that will make a difference to us. By the time you're at oral argument, how often is your mind already made about uh, the case? My argument, now, the, the key to your question is made up. You see, open-mindedness is not blank-mindedness. Open-mindedness is being prepared to change your view when presented with a better set of proofs and arguments. Now, that is what happens. And that's what's going on. By the time you're up on the bench, you are there, you probably have a more firm view, than when, certainly, than when you opened that first brief. It's harder to change. But your mind is, you're there and you're listening and you want to see what's important to the lawyers and you want to see why did they say this rather than that, so that by the time you get out of the oral argument and think about it on Thursday, you're honing in on this. You're much closer. And would you say that oral argument never changes opinion from A to not A? You're wrong. Sometimes it does. And then we have our conference on Friday, say two days after, and, and we go around the table. And by this time, people are much more firm in their views. But I'll have a book, and it has the case name, and it has a room for everybody, you see. And everybody has such a book for every case. So the Chief Justice starts, and he... he uh, says the issue in this case is thus and so, and I think I'm leaning this way because, and he gives his reasons. And then it goes to Justice Scalia, and then it goes to Justice Kennedy, uh, and then uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Ginsburg, me, Justice Alito, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan. Nobody speaks twice until everyone has spoken once. That's an excellent view. I mean, that really is a good rule. And, and by the time we're finished... You see, with that part of the discussion, we know where people are beginning and where they stand. And then there can be some back and forth. But the key to the back and forth and the key to the conference, in my opinion, 
is people are stating their true reasons. You know, I, I will say something even though there's a risk of it being ridiculous. If it's my true reason, I better give it. And it's not who has the better argument. There, there's no posturing. And I've there, heard there you is, say it never gets personal No, it doesn't. There. It's professional. Yeah. And you go, you go around the room and, and people are saying these. That's why the inside story of a court is so often, I'm not going to say 100%, but so often there is no inside story because you have in an opinion the reasons in the law for what is moving that judge and those who join him to that result. Could we go back just for a moment to the oral arguments? The questions that you and the other justices pose to the lawyers Mm -hmm. in those sessions Mm -hmm. are often quite challenging, brutally so at times. Are you trying to solicit some information that is going to surprise you, something that you think you haven't thought of before? The, the nature of those questions is is so challenging. Is there a purpose in that? Is there a strategy? There, there are two different things going on, I think. First, I wish it were more than half an hour each side, but my colleagues basically don't agree with that. I mean, I think we do better if it's longer because of, of what I think we're trying to do. The best kind of question, in my opinion, is a question that I think, number one, it's important to how this case comes out. Two, I don't know the answer. Three, I think the lawyer can help me because he's more likely to know the answer on this. And four, my colleagues have not already asked the question. Now, those might be fairly few and far between, but that's the best kind of question. Another kind of question is actually by asking this question, it also reveals to your colleagues where you're coming from. I want to know if I can, if, if I can, and sometimes we do find out. Where are my colleagues coming from? And sometimes the following happens, which I just think is terrific, just terrific. Difficult issue, really difficult. And what's going on in that question is the judges are, through their questions, talking to each other with the help of the lawyer. And the lawyer is drawn into a conversation. And, and every so often, I'll come off the bench, and others will too, and say, you know, we really made progress in that argument. And progress means that it's, it's a kind of work of art, but it's not, it's not art. I mean, it, it's a legal field. And, but you feel that this is all such a good thing when you can make that kind of progress, and, and it does happen. Let's talk about Opinion Day. You know, the day a decision comes down, the court is issuing a ruling about gay marriage or the president's health care law. And you wake up in the morning... You know what the result is. In fact, you've probably known for three, maybe six months. But the rest of the world is guessing about the outcome. What is that morning like? No, that's the, the I think that the, uh, that, that's not where the en- enormous emotional uh, stress or... Right. It, it isn't there. It's almost anticlimactic it, at that point correct. for you. That's the, the, the important thing from my point of view and probably for the judges is when very controversial decision when people have finally signed off, when they've joined an opinion or they've written a dissent or they've joined the dissent. At that moment, it's, it's definite. I mean, it could change, but it's never, it never happened that I can think of. So and the die is cast. That's the, the die moment. is cast. And then how it is presented, sometimes it, it can be dramatic. I agree sometimes. Uh, I'm not going to say that Bush versus Gore, that was dramatic. So it can be dramatic sometimes. But uh, So on that day, though, when you're sitting there, 
And you may have written the majority opinion, or maybe you signed on to the majority mm. opinion. Yes. And then one of your colleagues is writing a scathing dissent. And you all can write quite scathing things when you're ticked off, when you lose. It's not personal, but it's very visceral in some ways, and it's very pointed. And you sit there with this poker face, or you try for a poker face. I think the best poker face is still uh, Justice Kennedy. He, it's like he's in mm. another world. Uh, he just, you can't, you see, you see nothing, you hear nothing. But what are you saying to yourself about, like, don't show, you certainly know what this justice is going to say, and there's some justices who are famous for their theatrics, but you still have to sit there and not roll your eyes, right? Right, right. Are you uh, very that conscious of that about your your facial expressions? Your body sometimes, language? I mean, I, 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 so, sometimes it just doesn't matter very much, and uh, sometimes it does matter. If it does matter, I, I'm perfectly good. I'd say in some uh, moment, which in, if it's the theater, I mean, that's a kind of theater. You're you're reading the uh, the opinion. You look at the water glass. You know, it's not that hard, and uh, also uh, uh, people are free to say what they want in their dissents. Uh, you know, what I tend to do, which is just as obnoxious it can be, but if I think I'm very right in a dissent or so, something and the others are very wrong, I might, you know, sort of go through this <laughs> uh, step one, step two, step three, step four. So it appears very calm, and very reasonable. Uh, but as Joanna says, when I start talking like that to her, she says, you know, I'm not an idiot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Joanna being your wife. <laughs> right, right, right. But you, you see, and, and, so, and some people are very good at writing. They, they write great. They have, and and it's a, a great writer, someone who has a great phrase, it is very difficult for that person to give up the phrase. Just as a good comedian, he can ruin his own career, and he will, rather than give up a good joke. <laughs> and so that's how people express themselves is really up to them. Do you watch the reaction of the audience when decisions are being announced? Do they not stick in your mind? Not particularly. They won't stick in my mind. They won't stick in my Even mind. Even in the same-sex marriage cases when people were crying in the courtroom? I, I am not going to discuss particular cases, even in that very distant way. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Who is your favorite comedian? You seem to be a person who has some interest in comedy. And who did I used to like very much? I love Sid Caesar and Imogene Coke. Do you remember that? I do. I used to love that. I used to love that. I thought that was that was terrific. And uh, we, 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 we was a different era. Tom Lehrer. You remember Tom Lehrer? I do well. Fabulous. A mathematics professor yes, at MIT yes, yes. and Harvard. Yeah. Yes, yes. And an extraordinarily funny man. Yes. And great piano player, too, in his yes. way. Just to, you must take a secret joy when you've got a case that turns out really quite differently than people thought. And there's been a lot of pontificating from our kind about how, oh, this guy, they've blown this. Whoever it was, they've blown this. Then it turns out not to be that way. And sometimes cases have twists and turns, too. Um, you must take a secret joy in watching the press section as we go, huh? <laughs> I mean, maybe you know, it's never look at us. No, that isn't. <laughs> I don't want you to feel <laughs> neglected. But, but, but at the same time, remember, the, the, I get up in the morning, I go into my office. My basic job is looking at the word processor and reading and trying to get the right answer to the case in front of us. And the two things that stick in my mind on advice of doing my job, Harry Blackman, who, who was my predecessor in, this, in my particular seat on the court, and he told me, you will find this an unusual assignment. And it is. Uh, David Souter told me, 
you are never off duty, and you're not. And the point is that all nine of us take this job very seriously. There is no uh, uh, sort of letting up. There just isn't. As you get older, that's an advantage. It's tiring, but it's an advantage because you, it calls for you to give whatever you have, the best of what you have, virtually all the time. Justice Breyer, you know, you probably would qualify for the closest thing to a political person on this court. Now, as wild as that might sound, because after all, you are profess- you were a professor, you were a court of appeals judge for a long time, and then named to the court. Um, but this court is composed almost exclusively of people who served on the federal courts of appeal and who did not have any significant political experience. Justice O'Connor was the last person who'd actually held elective office. Um, You worked for Teddy Kennedy uh, as counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. So you had political experience. Now it was a while ago, to say the very least. Uh, But what did you learn from him and from that experience? Oh, I, I learned an enormous amount. And it was a wonderful job uh, working in the Senate. For one thing, at a very practical level, uh, I learned how laws were made. That was my job. And I think it's terribly important for ordinary citizens to understand that process. And the only thing that frightens me is you use the word political, and I thought, oh, that's not... Oh, Oh, well. And what I'm reflecting there is a concern that the general public is too cynical about that process and doesn't understand it terribly well. It's much more on the merits of things than people think. And I think that's an important thing to understand. People do have different views in the country. And people, it's not a terrible thing that the Supreme Court is made up of nine people who don't all have the same view on even very basic fundamental issues. It's a country of 315 million people. My goodness, you understand that when you work in the Senate. My goodness, you have to understand the points of view of people you disagree with. And so a political process was not necessarily a pejorative, negative term. When I grew up, it wasn't, and it shouldn't be. It it is a process for allowing 315 million Americans to live together as a single community under law. That's what a political process is. So what did you learn from from Senator Kennedy? What's the best lesson you learned from him? I learned a lot of lessons. First, you'd have to understand what he was saying when he was talking quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Second, you would have to absolutely, a few of the best things, is the one, which I've written on a cup. I kept telling my law clerks these things. They gave me a cup with these things engraved. And it says, for example, the best, he believed this, my goodness, the best is the enemy of the good absolutely go for the good. Hold out for the best, you'll end up with nothing. Don't try to get credit for yourself or even your boss. I mean, he'd say to us, look, if you get a project and you get a law and it's successful, there'll be plenty of credit to go around. And if it's not successful, who wants the credit? And therefore, I would saw him do this so many times. He's with someone who has a very different point of view of a different political party. And they're talking about how to produce some kind of compromise. His reaction is, as soon as he sees the opening, what a good idea you have. (laughs) What a good idea. Let's see how we can work with that. 
And when it comes time to have the press conference, there he was, pushing the other person out. <laughs> mm. So that other person would be able to get become more popular in his constituency, which is important for elected officials. But you see, that is the, the process used to work, and I, and, I, and I hope it still does in many respects, work at that kind of level. Always. I mean, we maybe we're there in the right period. Ken Feinberg was there with me. I was there. We had a great staff. And what Kennedy would say uh, every day, he wanted me to sit down with Strom Thurmond's uh, a chief of staff on judiciary, very conservative Republican. We'd have breakfast every morning. Ken would be there, and we'd try to plan out the day. Didn't your daughter have some kind of a shared activity with one of Strom Thurmond's uh, children, some kind of skating? Or they were classmates. <laughs> they were classmates. They were classmates yes. at school, Nell and, and, and Nancy. And, and uh, they were good friends. And that sort of thing, it seems to me, used to happen more in the 70s and 80s, maybe even in the 90s. And it mm. seems to have largely died out, partly because the senators don't bring their families here, or the members of Congress certainly don't. And there just seems to be less of that shared familial intersection. I know what Senator Kennedy thought in part was the cause, because he used to talk about that. He'd say it's the jet plane. You see, the jet plane means that the it's possible for the elected representative to be home on the weekend. And if he can be home on the weekend, his constituents want him home. So there they are, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, traveling or home, and, and uh, they don't get to know each other as people. Now, that was one of his views for what, what he saw as a change. You know, we don't want to let you go without talking about your book. Oh, the court. You said and the world. Right. So it's about how the work you do as a Supreme Court justice is increasingly intertwined with the work of your judicial counterparts in other countries. And um, there's one example in the book of how that happens. It's a case called Kurtzing about a college kid who started reselling textbooks. Do you want to talk about that case? I, I like that case. Very interesting. Kurt Sang was from Thailand. He's a student in Cornell. And he discovers that the very textbooks he's using, which are quite expensive, are much cheaper in Thailand, in English. So he says uh, to his parents, send me, send me a few. And they sent more than a few. And he began to sell them. And then after he sold quite a few, the publisher got annoyed and brought a suit, a lawsuit. And the question was, does he have the right to sell those books? And to answer that question... In this world, you have to know something about how other countries deal with their copyright laws, what the uh, practices of publishers abroad are. There's no way to get a sensible answer. That's true of that copyright case. It was true in an antitrust case. It was true in a securities case. It's true in treaties that govern now today uh, the abduction of children, uh, particularly in marriages where one person is from one nation and another from another. Uh, it's true in national security uh, versus uh, uh, civil liberties, uh, Guantanamo, for example, and other cases where we're asked to say, does the security situation justify this uh, uh, limitation of what would normally be a civil liberty? Uh, to answer that intelligently, you have to know something about what the security situation is. So in the judge's mind, in many, many different areas, there have to be questions such as, how do we interpret this statute? How do we interpret this part of the Constitution in a way that brings about greater harmony in Nations working towards highly desirable ends. So what That's did you what decide in Kurtzang? In Kurtzang, we decided the student won. And why? Why did he win? Because if you go into a store and you buy a book, you can do what you want with that book. 
And we said it's no different if he buys the book in Thailand. Well, we want to be respectful of your time. So we do have a last question for you. Um, you are 77. Mm. And Nina has told us often that it's been said on the court, it's kind of like being married to eight other people. Yes. And, you know, do you think about something like that ending? Sure. Nothing lasts forever. What At questions? At some point, I will retire. And what questions? And the question is, what point? And if you know the answer to that, you know more than I do. Because <laughs> at this at this moment, I'm not I'm not sure. But what questions do you ask yourself about what it will be like once you do something? Oh, like it'll that? be different, but I will adjust. <laughs> it, I will. You'll adjust. be telling more jokes to those grandchildren. Oh, poor grandchildren! <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer talking with Nina Totenberg, and Ron Elving, and Elsa Chang. So, Elsa, how was it? He's just like a really warm, easygoing yeah. guy. He's so easy to talk oh, that's to. Awesome. Uh, and we'll say again that Justice Breyer's new book is called The Court and the World, American Law and the New Global Realities. As always, you can hear more of NPR's political coverage on your local public radio station. Turn on your radio. Yes, your radio. Listen to Morning Edition and All Things Considered. And find us on Twitter at NPR Politics. Tell us about the show, what you'd like to hear us talk about, and stay tuned for some more special guests on the podcast very, very soon. Until then, thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.